for sure. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15. That's where you need to put your thumb <laughs> into your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's going to kind of be home base for us today. Um, I think we would all agree that God gives us some of these beautiful, I would almost say kind of magical moments in life periodically. And so if, if you are a married man in here, I think you would say that that moment when your wife, like you have fooled her into this thing, right? I mean, she's got the, the wedding band is coming on. And that moment that you have fooled her into opening those doors and here she comes down the aisle. That's a magical moment, right? Like in that moment, you're sitting there thinking, what is she doing? Has she lost her mind? Does she know me, right? And so it's just this magical moment where you just get this beautiful glimpse at the glory of God, right? Okay, now, um, if you're not single in here, you might think of like the, I mean, that moment where you win the game, you know? I mean, it's just that magical moment where grown men cry, you know? I don't know why they do that. And so um, if you're married and have kids in here, though, here would be another one for you. That delivery room scene, when that baby, like this reality sets in that God has just given you that thing. Like that, that is your little baby, right? I mean, that is a magical moment. Now, okay, now think about that, that moment for a second. In the middle of that delivery room scene, as you're holding this newborn little baby, that, that moment is so full of hope, right? And so in that moment, you're thinking about all of these ambitions and hopes that you would have for this little guy. And so, I mean, like when I sit there and, and held Caleb, it, like thoughts like this would come across my mind. Like maybe this little guy will be completely surrendered. Man, I hope that for him. Maybe this little guy will give his life to getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. Like maybe this little guy will tell the last one before Jesus comes back. Okay, then it kind of regresses, like depending on what sort of a stage in life you're in. Like maybe it comes to, I just hope they get out of high school, right? I hope the teacher doesn't call this way. I mean, so that moment is so full of hope though. Okay, now I want you to like, transfer that moment over into a church plant. And I want you to think about kind of this, like this has been the last eight to nine months for us is we have got to sit down and we've got to map out vision, values, hopes, God-saturated ambitions for a place. And I want you to know what the ambitions are here. Like, I don't want you to be fooled into thinking that we're about this when the reality is, is we're about something completely different. And so I want you to know off the cuff, like this is, this is the ambition. Like at the middle of the, or in the beginning of this kind of this is, uh, this is something that we're shaping and such hope here. Like, it's really important that you know what that, this is what we dream of for this place is. And if I were going to summarize it, I think in a sentence, I think I would say something like this. That we would love the glory of God. That our lives would be about displaying the beauty and the majesty and the greatness and the grace of God every day of our lives. So it would be about the glory of God, that we would love the glory of God and that we would live in the gospel of God. Like if I were going to summarize our hopes for this place in a simple phrase, that would be it. That we would love the glory of God and we would live in and we would live out of the gospel of God. That we would be gospel-saturated people. That we would be people. I come to this Martin Luther idea where he's going to say that the gospel, it is the primary thing. Like there is not another, like this is the primary thing that makes us a believer in Jesus. This is it. And it's so important that not only do we know this thing, but we can teach this thing. And that like, here's, I, I love this ending phrase, that we beat it into each other's heads continually. I mean, that is the hope here. 
That this place would be saturated by the glory of God and the gospel of God. Because if it's saturated by the gospel of Jesus, this place, then here's what we know here. This place is going to be full of grace and truth. I mean, we're going to be a place that lovingly confronts. We're going to be a place that, because of the gospel, because of the glory of God, is naturally going to reach our fingers into the unreached peoples of the world. There are a million treasures that flow from the glory of God and the gospel of God. And if we can get that thing right here, all of those treasures will appear in this place. So that's the, I mean, that's the hope, the heart, the ambition of this place, the glory of God and the gospel of God. Okay, so that's why we've spent the last several weeks trying to outline this is what the gospel is. When we say the gospel, this is what we mean by that. So there's no confusion. Like the gospel is one of those things that um, it's real easy to, to define until somebody asks you to define it. And then the blank stare comes back. And so we've tried really hard to articulate that and to define that in such a way that when that question is asked, you can know with confidence this is the biblical gospel. This is it. Okay, so here's the goal. This is week five of this series. And if if you kind of caught on the last kind of portion of this, I'd really recommend that you grab the podcast and and you kind of roll through the, the previous four weeks with us. And so here's the hope of today is just to simply ask some questions about where your life stands in relationship to the gospel. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 15 is going to take us there. 1 Corinthians 15 goes like this. Starting in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Okay, so Paul is speaking to a church here. He's not out on a corner trying to evangelize. He is speaking in a church, and he's saying, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remind you of the gospel that I've preached to you. Okay, that has been the hope of the last four weeks, is to say, this is the glorious gospel. This is what it is. This is the objective truths that that make the gospel up. So we've got the just and gracious God of the universe. The gospel starts with God. It is about God. The goal of the gospel is God. He's the giver of it. He's the gift of it. He's the goal of the gospel. It starts with God. Okay, so we've got the just and gracious God of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful people. That we are hopelessly sinful. Cheer up, huh? It's probably worse than than it even seems to you right now. Okay, so we're hopelessly... So it means that we are hopelessly trapped there, bound there. Hopelessly sinful people. So the question of the Bible is how will God respond? This just and gracious God, how will he respond to our sinfulness? Our glory robbing, our clenching our fist around the glory that is due him? How's he going to respond? He responds by sending his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to demonstrate his power over sin in the resurrection. That is how God responds to us. I mean, that is the gospel that, that we are sinful, God is holy, and God responds in grace with the cross. So that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. And then we kind of put the cap on it last week, the umbrella that fits over it, and it's all for the glory of God. The gospel is about the glory of God, showing God off to the world. Okay, so that, he's reminding them. First thing he does, church, I want to remind you of this gospel that I preach to you. You've got to remember the gospel. Okay, now he goes on to say this. So it's this gospel I preach to you, and then he says this, which you received. Okay, you might underline that word received. Okay, now received, that, that, that's looking back at a past tense thing. So this is a point in time thing that has happened in their past. So there was a time when they looked at the gospel and they received the gospel. 
So, okay, now when we kind of set the context of what it means to receive the gospel a couple of weeks ago, where we said, okay, if, if you receive one thing, you reject another. So if there's a Dr. Pepper and a Coke, Christians, stiff arm the Dr. Pepper, take the Coke, right? Okay, so that, that's what, so if you take one thing, you reject the other thing. Okay, that's what it means to receive the gospel, that we turn our back on other things and we grab Jesus. We grab the gospel. So that's what it means to receive it. So he is looking back and saying, this is a point in time decision. There was a moment that this happened when you went from darkness into light. Like first John's going to say it. You were an orphan. Now you're not. Now you're adopted into the family of God. You were under the curse of the law. Like you were, you were under sin. Now you are under the riches of God's grace. Because that is a point in time decision. You receive the gospel. Okay, now next phrase. And this is going to kind of be our question for the morning. So, okay, this gospel that I preached to you in which you received, and then this last little phrase here, these four words, in which you stand. Okay, now that's asking and kind of getting a whole different thing here. So we're not looking at this back here in the past point in time decision. We are saying now in which you stand today. So it's not this past reality. This is a present day reality. So it's not just that we receive the gospel, it's that we are standing in the gospel. Okay, so this is the question of the morning. The question of the morning goes like this. Are you standing in the gospel? Are your feet planted in the gospel? Are you living out of the gospel? Okay, so now notice what we're not asking. We're not asking, do you sort of believe kind of some of the things about the gospel? We're not asking, do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? We're not going for a surface level belief. We're not even saying, do you acknowledge those facts and kind of agree with them and kind of wrap your arms around them? Yeah, I mean, we're not asking that. We're not even asking, was there a point in time decision that that happened? Like you received, we're asking present day reality. Are you standing in the gospel? Are you standing in it? Have you planted your life in the gospel that washes over every feeling, that touches every little part of your life, that redeems and purifies every emotion, every hope, every ambition, every desire? Are you standing in the gospel? That's the question. Okay, now, now here's my fear with this, that I think there's a little bit of a tendency in kind of Christian circles that will grab a phrase like standing in the gospel or a thousand other ones, and, and we'll use that phrase, like we'll kind of adopt it into our vocabulary. We'll kind of do this whole thing with a phrase, but yet have no idea what the phrase means. Case in point. I don't know how many locker rooms I've seen this verse on there. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, Right? I mean, we claim it, claim the promise, right? So the question is, what does that mean? I mean, it's, it's, we, I mean, we put it under the black under our eyes. I mean, we do the whole thing with it, right? And so the question is, what does that mean? Does that mean that we can levitate on cue, fly around like Superman? I mean, what, what does that mean? Throw a perfect pass every, what is that? Now, here's the problem. I think that's exactly what it means that most people have it in their locker room. That we just became Superman with Philippians 4.13, right? Okay, or maybe does that verse mean that if I have much in life or if God has stripped everything from me, he has stripped health from me, he has stripped finances from me, he has stripped my family from me, and I die on a distant shore, that I can still be content in him. I think that's what the verse means. I I don't think it means that, that we just turn into Superman, right? 
Okay, so, so we can, we can kind of claim these, these phrases and yet have no idea what they mean. So the last thing I want to do is, is throw out, okay, are you standing in the gospel and not give the substance and the implications of what that question means? Okay, so I'm going to ask that question, are you standing in the gospel by asking and kind of making three statements that, that kind of have the implications of that played out? Like if you can answer yes to these questions, you can answer yes to the I'm standing in the gospel question. Okay, so you're getting the logic here. Are you standing the gospel? Here's three questions that kind of be synonymous. I think Paul could throw in right underneath that question and ask that in its place. So here would be question number one. Kind of three questions to get at this idea. Are you standing in the gospel? Number one, are you gospel saturated? Number one, are you gospel saturated? Okay, so think of this idea of a sponge for just a second. Like if you've got a sponge under the faucet and it is full of water, Okay, so here's what happens to the sponge then. Okay, if you, if your gospel saturated, if your sponge is filled with water, when you bump into the sponge, water leaks out. If you squeeze the sponge, water leaks out. If you wipe the sponge over anything, water leaks out when the sponge is full of water. When it's saturated with water, it naturally oozes water out of it. So when we're asking the question, are you gospel saturated? We're asking the question, is your life saturated by the gospel? Okay, so, so maybe you can ask it this way. When you are squeezed in life, does the gospel come out of you? I mean, when somebody bumps into you, does the gospel come out? I mean, do we plan acts of violence when that happens? Or do we plan fresh acts of love through the gospel? Okay, so that's the... Are we saturated with the gospel? Okay, so, so we're about uh, 23 or 4 weeks old, Stonegate Church. 10 weeks into Stonegate Church, God kind of just threw me a bone. I'll be honest. I mean, it was a complete... I'm just looking at God saying, God, you didn't have to do this, but thank you. I mean, you're being really nice to Rodney Hobbs here. And so I'm at a Midlothian High School football game, right? And uh, I, I'm just kind of sitting, we're minding our own business. I think the Chadwells are there, Laura and I are there, a couple of families are there. We're just hanging out watching Midlothian High at the football game. And all of a sudden, my eyes just kind of drawn down to this teenage guy in high school. He had a le- Midlothian letter jacket on. So I go into stalker mode, right? It was kind of scary for a second. I'm just kind of looking over his letter jacket. I'm seeing his name on the back. And literally, it it was just basically patches that kind of made up a jacket, right? I mean, he had 38 patches on this thing. And so I'm just kind of looking over the different patches he has. And all of a sudden, it happens, right? I see the patch that would indicate this guy wrestles. Time stopped. I look over at Laura. Am I hallucinating? I mean, can you verify that this is, this is, is this for real? And so I asked the guy and he's like, yeah, we have wrestling here. And like, I'm instantly like, I know why God sent me to Midlothian. Caleb is going to get to wrestle. Okay. Now, now this is the background of that story. I come out of the womb and literally I just kind of fell into tight spandex, right? AKA a wrestling singlet. Okay. If you don't know, if you haven't seen a wrestling match, you have to bear with me here. Okay, so if there's, if there's one thing more weird than two men wrestling, it is two men wrestling in tight spandex, right? Would we all agree with that? I can't explain it. I didn't make up that rule, all right? I was just a victim of it. And so, okay, I, I come out of the womb and I am wrestling. My older brothers wrestled. Like, this is the thing we did growing up. I mean, this was who we were type thing. And so I'm like four years old, can barely walk, and they've got me on a wrestling mat teaching me 
how to wrestle. And so, okay, now, now this is kind of the progress when you start to learn how to wrestle. You start to learn technique. Like this is what you do, how you do it. Like these are the five things that make up this move and you've got to do that enough where it's a reflex. You do it instinctively when something happens to you. And so they kind of start you off in this thing. And so at four years old, I'm out on a wrestling mat and I'm learning kind of step one. And step one is how do you take somebody down? Like that's the first thing you got to figure out in this thing. So the first thing you have to learn to take somebody down is a thing called a drop step. If you're a wrestler, you probably know that term. If you're not, you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's okay. And so you learn a drop step. Here are the five things that make it up. Here's how you do it. Learn it. So I learned the drop step. Then we graduated from the drop step. And now we're kind of past the how do you take somebody down. Now we're to the how do you get out. I mean, how do you keep somebody from holding you down? So you learn, like, this is what you do when they do. You learn that whole thing. This is how you get out. Now you graduate to the next thing. Now it's not how do you get out. It's how do you keep somebody down. Okay, so you kind of see this progression, right? You kind of learn this and you graduate, learn that, grad. Okay, I think that illustrates to the T the problem with how we view the gospel. We breathe distorted air when it comes to the gospel. I mean, okay, so this, this is the distorted air. That you learn this and then you move on. That you get the gospel out of the way. I mean, you kind of walk into the door of the gospel. Then you move on to the deep things in life. So you graduate from this and you move on to that. You kind of walk through the door. Then you move on to the stuff that really makes it what it is. So, so you kind of have this graduating mentality. And Paul's saying, listen, you do not graduate from the gospel. You just grow in it. That's all you do. And if we think that the gospel is just for non-believers, just for people outside of Jesus, we have missed everything. We'll stunt our growth forever. I I love what like Tim Keller said. He's going to say that the gospel is not just the minimum requirements to enter the kingdom of God. It is the way we make all progress all growth in the kingdom of God. So the God, okay, listen to me. Here's what I'm saying. Paul, first thing he says, 1 Corinthians 15, I need to remind you, believers, church, of the gospel. Are you living with it on an everyday sort of a basis? Is it something that you're preaching to yourself continually? The gospel is for believers. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, the gospel is for you. And unless you preach the gospel to yourself daily, you will stunt all progress in the kingdom. Okay, that's the idea. Are you saturated with the gospel? Okay, that's what we're asking. Are you saturated with it? Does it come out of you when you're hit? Is this the flow of thought? Are you set? Okay, so is it the thing when you wake up that you're thinking about? That as you're living through the day, are you eating the gospel? Are you thinking about meditating on the gospel? Do you sleep with the gospel at night? Is it the thing that dominates, that sits over your life? Is the gospel saturating? And here's the beautiful thing if the gospel is saturating this place. There's a million, million treasures that flow from the fountain. If the gospel is saturating this place, then, then here's what's going to happen. Our ministries are going to be saturated with the gospel. Our home groups are going to be saturated with the gospel. Our marriages in this building will be saturated with the gospel. Our friendships will be saturated with the gospel. Our mission opportunities will be saturated with the, Everything we do will be saturated by the gospel. So, okay, let me ask the question. Are you standing in the gospel? Question underneath that. Is the gospel saturating everything you do? Does it ooze out of you? 
Okay, question number two. It goes like this. <clears throat> so now it's not just so you're saturated with the gospel. Here would be the next question. Are you growing in gospel awareness? And this is going to be a massive one here for us. Are you growing in gospel awareness? Okay, so, so part of what it means, or maybe you could say it this way. When, when, you're, when you become a Christian, th- there is a bare minimum that you have to know to become a Christian. A bare minimum amount of the gospel. And so if you want to picture it kind of like you're on the steps of the pool, kind of just dangling your foot in, that's conversion. And, and so here, here's the progress of growth in the kingdom, that we get off the steps, we stop just dangling the foot in, and we jump into the shallow end, and we start walking in the gospel. And then we start swimming in the deep end, and eventually we hold our breath and we swim down to try to get to the bottom of it. Okay, that is gospel growth. It's growing in awareness of the gospel. Okay, now let me show you why this is so important. Um, if you want to flip over to Colossians chapter 1. It's going to be on the screen for you if you, want to, if you want to use the screen. Colossians chapter 1. I'll show you why this is such an important idea. Are you growing in gospel awareness? Colossians 1 verse 3. We always thank God. Okay, and this is Paul talking to the church, right? So he's talking to the church here. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 3. When we pray for you, verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the word of the truth. Okay, look what he says here, the gospel. Okay, so, so let, me, let me back up, verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth. Context, the gospel, that's what he's talking about here. You've heard this in the gospel. Okay, big word. Now, verse 6, which has come to you. Okay, so this gospel has been preached to you. Now, look what he says. As indeed, in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and growing as it does among you. Now, this is what Paul is saying. That the gospel is a living, breathing thing. Okay, like to the church in court, he's going to say, I gave birth to you through the gospel. The gospel has the life of God in it. It is how God breathes life to people is through the gospel. Okay, so, so this is why Paul would say in Romans 1 that I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God. In Corinthians, he's going to say that, that it's the light of the glory of Christ. The gospel is a breathing, living thing. And look at what it does here. It bears fruit and it grows. So we grow, we make progress in the kingdom by the gospel. So we grow through the gospel. That's how growth happens. Okay, now that's incomplete still though. Now look at the next phrase. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Okay, so so here's what's just happened. He's saying that all progress you make is through the gospel. Okay, maybe I can say it this way. If you're hoping for change in you from any other avenue but the gospel, you're going to flame out. You're going to crash and burn. If you're looking for change by your willpower, by your emotional kind of a kind of heart, if you're looking for change in any way other than the gospel, you'll never make it. He's saying that gospel is the only way you grow. But it's not, okay, now this is the last phrase here. But it's not just hearing the gospel. 
It's not just being able to recite a definition of the gospel. It's not being able to say when somebody asks, what's the gospel? The gospel is the, and, and throw it out. It's not that. It's hearing the gospel in the last phrase and understanding the gospel. We grow through understanding the gospel. That is how you grow. Every movement forward, every movement forward in the Christian life is you figuring out another layer of the gospel. You growing in gospel awareness. Every movement forward. That that is the prerequisite for your growth as a Christian. For you to be changed, for you to be Christ-like, we have got to know and preach and understand and grow in awareness of the gospel. Okay, so, so let me throw this chart out here that I think will help you kind of see this. Should be the next slide here. Next slide. Right there. Okay, so I, this, this chart I think brings the, the awareness of what we're getting at here. Okay, so if you look at this chart, time is left to right. So your time as a person on this planet goes from the baby on the left side to you die on the right. Okay. So the dot in the middle of that chart is conversion. That is the point in time decision where you receive faith. That's when it goes down right there. The point in time I've received the gospel at that point. Here's what happens. You are accepted by God, not because of your righteous deeds, but because of what Christ has done. At that moment, everything has changed. You are no longer an object of wrath. You're an object of the affection and the riches of God. Okay, so here's the thing, though. When you, that point in time decision, you have accepted the gospel conversion. You've received it by faith. You know very little of the gospel at that point. I mean, you know a bare minimum. The cross at the point of conversion is really small. I mean, we know that God is holy. We know that we're sinful. Like, we know those things. But we're dangling a foot in to them. Okay, now, now picture this. The top little bar there going up, that is a growing awareness of God's holiness. It's not saying that God is more holy. It's saying that you are growing in your awareness of God and of his holiness. Bottom line, we are growing in our awareness of our sinfulness. So we are learning more and more that we are sinful people. Okay, so you get the picture here. As time goes on, we're growing in gospel awareness. And here's what it means to grow in gospel awareness. That we are having these Isaiah 6 moments where we see a glimpse of God that shatters every other preconceived idea that we had of God. I mean, we get a glimpse of God that is so big, so majestic, that it, I mean, it floors us, it shatters us. And when that happens, when we get this glimpse of God on this top end, then we also get this glimpse of us in relation to God. And we see that, you know what? We're not nearly as good as we thought we were. I mean, we realized we were sinful, but we didn't realize we were that sinful. See, as we grow in gospel awareness, questions like this stop to come to our, like, they just stop coming to our mind. Questions like, uh, how could they have done that? See, when we grow in gospel awareness, we no longer have those questions. Because we realize the same heart that's in Hitler is in you. We realize there is no sin outside of our bounds. See, that's the growing awareness. We realize, I mean, things like this start to make sense. That we are the worst sinner we know. Here's why. Because we know our sin the best. See, that is growing in gospel awareness. 
Okay, now this is how this works itself out. The more you grow in gospel awareness, here is God. He is off the chart. Here is us. We're not even on the chart. The more we grow in that gospel awareness, the bigger the cross looks to us. The bigger the gospel is to us. And the, okay, listen to me. The bigger the gospel is, the more obedience you have. The more Christ-like you become. The more like Jesus your life looks. Okay, you could say it this way. Your Christ-likeness is the same size as your cross. However big your gospel is, however big your cross is, is how much you look like Jesus. Okay, now there, there are some enemies to this though. I, and it's really important, you know, there, there are some enemies to having a big cross. I mean, okay, so you've got one enemy that, that would be legalism. And legalism is this enemy that makes everything, I'm going to earn my acceptance. I mean, this is the Pharisee's mind, that I'm going to bring something to God, that I have something in my hand to bribe God with. I have these good deeds that are going to earn my acceptance. Okay, and listen, if, you're, if you've grown up in church, it's ingrained in you. I mean, you might as well just take it off the cuff and just say, I'm probably this. I mean, performance-based righteousness is the, I mean, it is the gospel the church preaches. Just do this and then you're okay. Just be this and then you're okay. I mean, if you'll just do these eight things, then you're good. And so this is how this works out in everyday life for us. When we've got this legalistic performance-based mentality, how it works out is, okay, so I'm on the JV team, right? So I've just crossed the line of conversion, figuring this thing out. And so um, I need to make sure I'm in church. So I make sure I'm in church, I give a little money, I do a little of this, and then surely God's going to be pleased with me. I mean, surely I've earned some righteousness here. I mean, I'm putting points on the board, not a whole lot, but I'm putting points on the board. Surely God is pleased with that. Okay, but then, this is the ingrain, the longer you're in church, the more dangerous this becomes. Because the longer you're in church, the more you start to get exposed to other things. Well, maybe it's not just church attendance. Maybe I need to read through the Bible four times this year. Maybe I need to have three quiet times today. And, and I need to, uh, for the next four years, times four would be like 908. We, we start to get this whole thing of, if I just do this, then God's going to be pleased. As if we earn God's righteousness. And here's what we do when we get into this legalistic mindset. Everything becomes duty. Everything becomes, I have got to do this because God says this. And when we do that, earning, trying to earn God's righteousness that way, it makes a mockery of his holiness and our sinfulness. It shrinks the cross. And if we are bent toward legalism in our heart, we'll always stunt our Christ-likeness. Because our Christ-likeness is dependent upon the size of our cross, the size of the gospel. Okay, there's this other enemy, which would be license on the other side. And typically, people kind of swing from one to the other. Okay, so I don't have to do these things. So then I'll run over here to license and heck. I mean, it's eat, drink, and and let's be married because tomorrow we're going to die. I mean, let's just run after the world with everything in us, right? And so we swing to license that says, I'll just live like I want. I I don't have to. I mean, I'm I'm saved. I'm whatever. So I'll just do whatever. And both of those are enemies to the cross. They both shrink the cross in your life. The gospel is a third way. The gospel is God is incredibly holy, demanding just payment. We are incredibly sinful. And the cross is beautiful. Okay, maybe you could think of it this way. The more you grow in gospel awareness, 
the more precious, the more electrifying, the more desirable Jesus becomes. And the more desirable Jesus becomes, the more you delight in doing his commands. The more Christ-like you become. So I was going into my sophomore year of college, um, probably three weeks before I, I kind of went back to school, that whole thing. And I'm at a college retreat. One of my favorite preachers is speaking. And in that moment, he presented a view of God. Like This was an Isaiah 6 moment for me. He presented a view of God that totally shattered every, like, everything I was holding on to. I mean, like, I thought of God as more as a God with kind of an aerodynamic paddle. I mean, really could get some speed going. Just was waiting, right? I mean, he had the rule book in hand, the Bible, just waiting for me to mess up, right? So this totally shatters all notions of who God was. This moment. I see a beautiful picture of the whole, like, growing in this awareness of the holiness, the beauty, the perfection of God. And in that moment, see, like, myself on the other end of that. Like I grow in the awareness of my sinfulness. And in that moment, that night, the cross exploded in size. I walked out of that room that night and everything about my life was different in that moment. Everything about it. The direction of life. I'm sitting here today because of that moment. And it wasn't because a pastor threw down something over my will and said, you need to do this. It wasn't because he pulled a lot of heartstrings. It was because he said, this is God. This is you. This is the cross. Okay, so maybe you could look at it in a couple of different ways, like in the scriptures. Um, like, just take forgiveness as an illustration. H- how do you forgive some? Let, let's say tonight somebody busts into my home and kills my family. How do you forgive in that? I mean, how do you even do that? I mean, how does that even happen? Okay, I want to read to you how Paul says it happens. How you do that. Okay, this is, you can just look at it on the screen. This is going to be Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 31, he, he says this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Okay, so, so forget. Okay, now this is what we're going to say. In other words, rather than plotting death right? This is how you plot fresh acts of love. Okay, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. And look what he says. Forgiving one another. That's the command. You forgive people. That's what you do. Okay, but look at the reason for it. He's not going to appeal to the will. He's not going to bring in the emotions. Look what he says. Look at how you do that. We forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. The only way we forgive is when the cross is big enough to allow us to. That's it. Your forgiveness equals the size of your cross. You'll never forgive beyond your cross. You'll never do it. And so if we want to be forgiving people, we have got to have a huge cross. Okay, take giving as an illustration, right? I mean, preachers are great at berating people for giving. Wouldn't you agree? Especially when the payment for their private jet is like due next month. Then, then it becomes really easy, right? And so, okay, yeah, that was a joke. I don't own a private jet, I promise. And so, so okay, how, how does Paul hammer down on giving? I mean, does he berate them? I'm the apostle. I said give. I mean, is that, did he kind of press on the will? I mean, is he going to pull the heartstrings? I mean, listen, you could really help these people here. 
I mean, look, here's this family. You give. This is what it does. So, I mean, does he pull it? Okay, look at what he does. This is going to be 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 9. He, he's telling the ch- church in Corinth, you need to give. And this is how he's going to tell it. Like, this is how he presses on obedience. This is how he does it. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says this. For you know, this is your reason. This is how you give generously. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you may, or so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He presses on generosity with the gospel. I mean, here's what he's saying. You will never be generous if all I do is stand up here with the command to give. You'll never be generous for the long haul if I stand up here with emotional pictures that kind of pull on your heart. You will only give when the gospel is big to you. You will only give when we recognize the grace that's been given to us. That alone will make us give. We will always be greedy people until the gospel is big. Your generosity mirrors your cross. If you're stingy, it means that your cross is really small. If you're greedy, it means that your cross is really small. Your generosity mirrors your your cross. And we could go through every area of life and say the same thing. Your obedience, your Christ-likeness mimics, it mirrors the greatness and the largeness of your cross. Okay, that's the idea. That's why it's so important for us to be growing in gospel awareness. This is God. This is us. And the bigger that cross becomes, the more desirable Jesus becomes and the more like Christ you become. Okay, so let me ask the question. Are you standing in the gospel? Okay, that question's determined by how is your gospel awareness? Okay, last one, then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Question number three. So it's saturated by the gospel. Are, are we there? Are, are we growing in gospel awareness? Are we preaching the gospel to ourselves every day? Okay, here's the last one. Is the gospel washing over your heart? Like, are you allowing the gospel to wash over, not the external, but the heart? Okay, so, so here's what I mean by that. And, and we'll try to be quick here. There's two ways for you to approach sin in your life. Right? I mean, there's two ways for you to jump into the battle and, and for you to get your gloves on and spar. Okay, so, so here would be one way. One approach to fighting sin in your life is going to be to focus on the externals. And so th- this is what this looks like. Lust. Dang. God, help here. Okay, so, so we're dealing with lust. The external approach goes like this. I mean, it's kind of the fireproof approach you see in the movie. I mean, I'm going to take the computer monitor, take it to the garage, get the baseball bat, and kill it. I mean, we get violent in this thing. Okay, we're going to throw the TV through the wall. We're going to do all these external things to help eliminate lust. And then we're going to say, God, I am so sorry. I hate it. God, will you please free me from it? I repent of it. And in a week, we're right back there. Okay, let's take lying. Um, Okay, so lying. I mean, you know the white lies that come out of your mouth before they even know they're there? I mean, like, okay, so this white line. So, so we take lying and we say, God, I, I know it's wrong. I know you say not to do it. I repent. I confess it. God, will you forgive me? I claim it. Okay. Okay, here's the problem with that. It's, it's like getting shot with a shotgun. I mean, BBs have ravaged all of your heart. I mean, they, they have exploded veins. Things are going really bad for you. And for somebody to say, hey, here's a Band-Aid. You want to put that on it? This should work well. I mean, that's what it's like. It's like giving morphine to a cancer patient. All the externals do, all they do 
is put a band-aid on the problem. All they do is treat the symptoms, not the disease. I mean, it would be like, like throwing a stick of dynamite onto the face of a rock, lighting the fuse, big noise, big bang. You look at it again and think, man, I, it didn't hardly affect the rock. The rock's still there. Okay, because the, the outside in approach never works. Okay, so here's the other approach. It's this inside-out approach. Transformation always happens from the inside out. This is why in in Matthew 12, it's going to say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You could say that for every external action. The reason you lie is because there's a heart issue. The reason we have lust in our life is there's a heart issue. The inside-out approach asks another question. So, okay, let's just take lying as an illustration. So... We catch ourselves lying. If you'll just look at your life, you probably catch yourself doing that a lot. Right? Okay, so you, you lie, and outside in would say, okay, God, I'm sorry. For Inside out says, why did I just lie? Why did I do that? And you know what I think you find under the external sin, the external action of lying? You know what you find there? A buried idol in your heart. When you drill down to your heart, here's what you probably find is an idol. That I fear man more than God. My idol is acceptance. And so the reason I lie is to make myself look good in front of them. Or maybe I didn't want to tell them a hard truth, so I'll just kind of lie to get around it. But my idol is acceptance. And until we put, like, bore a hole into our heart and stick the dynamite into the hole for the idol that idol will always fuel more sin. So here's what I'm asking. Are you allowing the gospel to bore a hole down into your heart to the idol, light the fuse, and for it to blow the idol up? Are you asking bigger questions than, God, I'm sorry I did X, external action. Are you allowing the gospel to penetrate your heart to the idol? Uh, that's the question. That's what it means to allow the gospel to wash over you. So this is what it looked like for me this week. And listen, this applies to every external sin. I just take whatever sin you struggle with externally and ask heart questions. So this week, and and we'll close it up. Um, This week, it looked like this for me. Like I'm looking over my notes last night and there's just like an anxiety as I'm looking over it. Like there's like this, this pressure, this, Okay, now, so I asked the question, like, what, what, why am I anxious about this? And, and you know what the problem is? There's a heart idol there. There's a buried idol in my life. And so there's this buried idol of, I care way too much about what you think. I care way too much about appearing clever and about appearing smart and, and funny and whatever little thing you want to throw out there. But I care way too much about what you think. I've got this buried idol of acceptance with you. And and so here's how, here's how that prayer goes. When you bore down to the heart, the issue is not anxiety. The issue is the buried idol in me. And so the, the, the prayer goes like this. God, will you free me from a suicidal love of acceptance? God, will you help me love people and not be enslaved to them? That's the idol. And until we allow the gospel to wash over our idols, our hearts, we will never stand in the gospel.
We'll never do it. Okay, we'll end with 1 Corinthians 15 here. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Paul says you need to preach it to yourself. Church, preach it to yourself. Which you received and in which you stand, verse 2, and by which you are being saved or being changed or being transformed by it. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Now, the last five words I think are terrifying. Unless you believe in vain. So here's the weight of why we have to stand in the gospel. Because it proves that we are not believing in vain. And so, okay, you think, okay, what does it mean to believe in vain? Does that mean that I'm just missing out on kind of the fullness of Christ on, on, on earth? I mean, does that just mean that while I live here as a Christian, I'm missing the fullness? Or does that mean that I'm going to be in the, the dang it crowd that says at the end of this thing, God, I planted a church for you, right? I mean, we did all of these great things for you, but then God would look at me and say, uh, depart from me. You didn't know me and I didn't know you. I mean, what, what does that mean, this believe in vain? And I think it's both. I think it's both. I don't think there's a loophole in it. I think that standing in the gospel is the only way it shows that we are not believing in vain. So there is some serious weight to this thing. I mean, there is serious, I mean, there is a gravity to standing in the gospel, saturated with the gospel, growing in gospel awareness, allowing it to flush over and wash over our hearts because it means that we have believed not in vain, but for a reason. It is authentic. It is for real. It is legitimate. And oh, I pray that for us as a church. Amen. Let's pray. So this, this is the question of the morning. Are you standing in the gospel? Are you standing in it? How big is your cross? Your Christ-likeness looks just like your cross. And when we can't forgive, it shows a small cross. When we're greedy, it shows a small cross. That is, when we don't love our wives sacrificially, it shows a small cross. We're not standing in the gospel. When we don't sacrificially lay down our lives for our families, it shows a small cross. When we're really struggling with desire, it shows a small cross. The bigger the cross, the more electrifying, the more beautiful, the more precious, the more desirable Jesus is. And the more we run after him. That's how obedience works. It flows from delight. The bigger your cross, the more Christ-like you look. So I want to ask you the question. Are you standing in the gospel? Is, are your feet planted in the God, are you saturated with it? Are you living it? Are you thinking about it? Are you preaching it to yourself? Are you standing in the gospel? Now, before we sing this last song, we're, we're about to sing, I think, a gospel-centered song. It is a song that helps us see the beauty of God, the greatness of God. It helps us grow in the gospel awareness of this is your God. This is how great he is. 
And, and this is our sin. And this is why we say that Christ is majestic. This is why we say that the cross is beautiful. Because it covers the gap. Are we standing in that? Okay, so before we sing that song, I want to just throw this out there. If you're here today, maybe the first time, and you have not received the gospel by faith, that is a point-in-time decision that declares you right before God. That is where your peace with God is made. And that is a point-in-time. That is a point-in-time decision where you say, Jesus, I want you. Here is my life. I joyfully surrender it to you. If you have not done that, I'd encourage you to take that guest card. On the bottom of that guest card, there's a box that says, I'd like to learn how to establish a personal relationship with Jesus. That'll start a dialogue. I'll shoot you an email and we'll get that conversation going. To the rest of us in here, the question of the morning. Stand in the gospel. Preach it to yourself. Grow in the awareness of it. And let's sing it. Lord, we love you. And God, I pray that... Moments like this and and times like this would be these radical just days of our life where you become so much more beautiful. And through that, you work in us so much more of you. So God, I pray that today for the Stonegate family. God, I pray for our daddies that they would be Christ-like examples, Christ-like pastors in their home. For our mamas in this room, that they would be Christ-like. God, for our teenagers, for our children, that they would have a huge cross, a beautiful, a precious cross, and that they would look like Jesus. God, for our college and singles guys, God, I pray for their lives. God, that they would love the glory of God and they would live in the gospel of God. So God, as we sing majesty, great God, as we sing You're incredible. God, you're beyond description. God, I pray that you might give us a great glimpse of you, of our sin, and of the large cross that sets between them. It's in your great and good name that we pray. Amen.